Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Gene Parker lived on the streets, and he called his friends when he needed help. I reached for this Gino I'm at the shelter. Give me a call if you can, because I'm trying to hook up a ride up to the hospital tomorrow so I can stay warm somehow. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Gene Parker died after being hit by a car, and reporters in New Hampshire wanted to learn more about his story and about homelessness in the state. We'll talk to them. Also in the 1960s, environmental scientists in New Hampshire began a research project on a scale that had never been done before. Their laboratory was a whole ecosystem, a 7,800-acre forest in the White Mountains. There are no ticks, there's no poison ivy, there's no poison snakes, and I've always said I can't believe somebody pays me to work there. And finally, we'll return to the issue of race and policing in New England, and we'll meet a black female police officer working on a mostly white force. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Lisa, you they're supposed to be down here at soup kitchen to pick me up. Where are you? Bye. That's the voice of Gene Parker, leaving a message for a friend. Gene had been living on the streets of Concord, New Hampshire, for five years. About 20 minutes after he left that message, he was hit by a car, and he later died. Gene's story led to a lot of questions about homelessness in that state, and New Hampshire Public Radio reporters Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty tried to find some answers. Their series, No Place to Go, Homeless in New Hampshire, looks at chronically homeless people like Gene Parker, and as you'll hear, others who live on the edge of homelessness. Jack and Natasha, welcome to Next. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I want to know more about Gene's story. Who exactly was he? Tell, tell us about him. Gene Parker had kind of a checklist of obstacles that kept him out of public housing, which is a big place he could have gone. A guy like him would have hoped to go. And then shelters. So a big one was his criminal record. He committed a really serious offense, a sex offense, that had him incarcerated for 10 years uh, he was a serious alcoholic. So at one point, he actually was offered shelter uh, down in Boston. But because of his proclivity for drink, he didn't want to stay in that shelter because one of the conditions of being there was that you had to be sober. Eventually, while he was living as a homeless person, he lost his legs, which I think we'll get into. So then he, he had criminal record, alcoholism, and he was disabled. So now not only are you trying to get a guy with a sex offense with a serious addiction indoors, which is hard enough, now you need a ramp to get him through the door. Um, Here's one of Gene's friends, a woman named Lisa Urena. Uh, In this tape, she's showing you some of the places that Gene used to sleep, including an actual hole in the ground. He needs to get out of his wheelchair. From here, he get out, right? And then he go like this you get on his knees yeah and then go through into there yeah. so he would he would drag himself down the stairs uh-huh into a spot to sleep 
Yeah, no, after he got here, he no move anymore. How did you find Gene's friends, the people who, who knew him, to help tell his story? It was this sort of weird coincidence where we, we knew that Gene had died, um, and we were curious to learn a little bit more about him. And then um, I, uh, you know, I actually sat on this panel uh, for, for homeless individuals to ask the media questions. And one of them was this woman, Lisa Urena. She was holding a picture of Jean that she just carried with her. And she had collected, after Jean died, she, she had all of these voicemails from him that she couldn't bring herself to delete. And so she was the first real good friend of his that we met. And then we started just calling, cold calling advocates, public defenders, people that were likely to have worked with him until we found people that knew him well. And then those individuals connected us with further homeless individuals. You mentioned these voicemails, and they're, they're very powerful, the voicemails that, that Gene left for, for Lisa. Let, let's listen to one. And it, it happened at a time when his tent burned down. This is Gino. Guess what? My tent just burnt down to the ground. I ain't got no place to go. So anyways, give me a call because I might need a ride out of here. Okay? Thank you. Bye. Why did his tent burn to the ground? So Gene Parker kept warm in the winter with a propane heater in his plastic tent. And, uh... One time, it, it resulted in some really serious burns that uh, ultimately led to frostbite because they happened in the winter, and then he had to have his legs amputated. In your story, you talk about th- the difference between Gene before his legs and after his legs. You actually have people talking about that, and I, I can only imagine how difficult it was to live on the streets before that, but life for Gene got quite a bit more difficult after he lost his legs. One of the things that we were just sort of, you know, fascinated by was the fact that homelessness itself becomes a sort of chronic illness, that there are conditions that bring you to homelessness, and then there are conditions that happen just because you are chronically homeless. So with Gene Parker, you know, he was on the streets because he was a sex offender. You could also say he was on the streets because he was an alcoholic, and that's a disease, and maybe he couldn't get out of his own way. But then he lost his legs because he was on the street. And then once he lost his legs, it was nearly impossible to get off the street again. You, you've talked about the advocates and the friends of his, including other homeless people, who attempted to help Gene throughout the years. Was there anybody in government or the public health system, a nonprofit, who was really trying to help him out? Was there some official help that Gene was getting? I mean, you, you know, you can talk to police officers or uh, people that are maybe more in the, the, the system, the city or state system, and everyone had heard of Gene. But the, the guy that was most embedded in a system, in a nonprofit, was an advocate we met named Andy Labrie. And He's a character unto himself. He's someone who is now legally blind, um, but continues to, you know, walk over the train tracks through the scrub to to meet with his clients who are homeless. Uh, and he was really, I'd say, Gene's most fierce, fiercest advocate who knew how to work the system and try to find him housing. I would email everybody on my email list saying, I'm still looking for housing. I actually even put an ad on Craigslist that I was looking for housing for a sex offender, and could anyone please help me? I got one filthy response, and that, that was it. 
We should note that Andy Labrie did eventually find a landlord who was willing to take Gene Parker in, but Gene unfortunately died before he could move into that place. Gene's story, as you said, Jack, is so complicated by the the fact pattern of his life, the decisions that he's made, his inability to stop drinking, so he had a hard time finding shelter. But there are many, many other chronically homeless people who don't face that same number of obstacles, but yet they also can't find a place to live in New Hampshire. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, so so let's talk about what chronically homeless means, right? It's actually defined by the federal government. Um, and it essentially means that you have a disability and you're on the street for a very long period of time, either for one long period of time or for repeatedly over the course of years. And anywhere you go in the United States, the chronically homeless individuals like Gene Parker are the ones that people see. You know, this is this is the visual aspect of homelessness, the people who are panhandling often or camping out on a city limit. Um, they're really a minority of the individuals who are homeless. You know, the, the statistics are really fuzzy, but anywhere from 10 percent to 25 percent of homeless people are chronically homeless. And, and the reason the government and advocates um, focus so intently on this minority of people is that the bulk of money spent on homelessness goes to these individuals. So why is that? Well, when you live on the street um, for years and years, where do you get your health care? In the emergency room. You probably don't have a primary care doctor, right, or a family medicine doctor. So you repeatedly go to the emergency room for conditions that are preventable, um, sometimes for, you know, almost needlessly, just to, for a place to stay warm. You wind up running in with cops again and again and again. Um, and it's actually a heck of a lot cheaper just to get them an apartment. It costs something like a quarter of the amount of money um, to just put somebody like Gene Parker into an apartment permanently. Who are who are the other eighty five percent or so? I mean, who who are the people who don't have homes, places to go, but maybe don't count as chronically homeless that you, that you looked at? They're individuals who you could call them housing instable, whose whose finances are instable enough that one thing can happen. You know, your car, your muffler goes on your car. You need to spend $800 on the car or you get sick. You're doing low wage work. You miss three days of work. So you miss a paycheck for half a week. The reasons they are homeless are all of the reasons that the economy is not currently working for people who are low income, you know, so so low wages, high rent. They just can't quite make ends meet. And you found people living at a place called the PK Motel. And let's listen to your story. A woman named Ami lets us into her room up on the second floor of the PK Motel. Her long brown hair is pinned up high. She holds an unlit cigarette in her hand. Like I said, I don't have much sitting room. You can sit on the edge of the bed. Ami, who's asked us not to use her last name, has packed her whole life into this room. Plastic bins of clothes, boxes of canned food she gets from the food pantry and heats up in her microwave. The object she says is most important to her, a photo of her holding her daughter in the hospital just after she was born. I've never been without that picture. That picture has always been beside my bed, no matter where I've been or where I've lived. Ami says her life really fell apart after her partner assaulted her so badly that in order to heal, she had to have metal rods and screws put in to hold her spine together. 
sleeping is very difficult. Um, I have days where I can get up and I can move around pretty good and it's an okay day and I have days where I can't. So since I don't know what days are going to be good, how do you really hold down any kind of job? Because of her injury, Ami collects Social Security. Most of that money goes to rent for this room, 550 each month. It's not that it's an awful place to be, but it's not where I want to be. The PK Motel rises up over a big, dusty parking lot, partway down a rural road in Effingham, close to the main border and wedged between the lakes and the White Mountains. The place looks more like a warehouse than a motel. It's not a place families stop on vacation. It's where local town welfare offices send people when they're out of options. And behind each of these doors are stories of people stranded by poverty. For Ovi Sharest, who's 31, he says he's stuck because he can't get a job. Jobs around here are tough. Um, the rates aren't that good. They're awful. Ovi lives just a couple doors down from Ami. He says even if he had a job, he couldn't get to it because, like a lot of folks at this motel, he doesn't have a car. When we talk to him, he's just about to take a three-hour round-trip walk to the nearest grocery store with his friend Francesca Wright. Wright says when most jobs are low-wage and part-time, it's hard to get a leg up and out of a place like this. She works at McDonald's. I'm 30 years old. I've got six, 15, 16 years' experience, and they were paying me seven seventy-five. Over on the other side of the building, Stephanie Agiton stands outside her room. She has a car and a job. But on the day we meet her, she tells us she can't get to work because she didn't have money for gas. I don't like living here, but I do it because like, at least it's a roof over our head. She lives here with her fiancé and two babies. She's 20 years old. I mean, I have food stamps, but it doesn't last the whole month because I have to buy formula, so. Agiton's boys are the third generation in her family to live out of motels, homeless. A lot of people got here because they were running away from something. Agiton's fiance says he became homeless as a teenager. He ran away from home after his father put a gun to his head. Sitting on the stone step outside her room, Vicki Leather says this motel is a refuge for her and her husband. Next to her is a bed of flowers they put in as soon as they arrived. The flowers are plastic, but she says next year they'll put in real ones. It's time that my husband and I had a life of our own because we've always been raising our grandkids. And between us, we have 22. The Leathers moved here from Maine a couple months ago. They're vague about why they left, but Vicki says they were surrounded by drugs and drug addicts. I mean, it's got so bad down there. The people was taking their cellars and turning them into crack houses and so many children getting, you know, hurt out of it. Back up in Ami's room, she says she's been homeless for months. But before the PK Motel, she says it was worse. For a couple nights. <laughs> uh, I have to laugh about this. I actually slept in a laundromat for a couple nights because it was warm. Ami says she's been on the wait list for subsidized housing for eight years. In the meantime, she lived in substandard apartments. One place had no heat. After ending up at the laundromat, she met a social worker who told her about the PK Motel. Most of the time, Ami says she's working on an exit plan. She's on the phone with insurance, with family court, with the housing authority. She says she actually has a deadline for herself to get out of here. This January coming up, I'll be 50. Wow. 
it happens fast. And I hope not to be homeless or staying at the PK at 50. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. And that's one thing a lot of people who live in these rooms have in common. They're thinking about leaving. They just don't know where they're going yet. That's Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty reporting for New Hampshire Public Radio and their series on homelessness. Natasha, near the start of that piece, you said something interesting, that the motel is a place where local town welfare offices actually send people when they're out of options. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. You know, we've been talking about homelessness in cities and and the advocates that we met. And you can literally, if you're in a city, uh, there's a there's a service called 211. If you're homeless and you dial this number and you say, I am in trouble, you know, I need a roof over my head, you can dial it. And at least we've been told by advocates who answer that phone uh, that that you'll get help in in 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you will have some options put before you of, okay, here's what we're going to do to help you out. But in more rural parts of the state, like where this motel is, where the PK motel is, um, you might call up that number and not get a response for hours. And in the same way, welfare offices up there tend to be open a couple days a week. Uh, so so it, it, it introduces this host of problems of how do you respond to those people Jack identified as really walking that line. According to data that we looked at from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, homelessness in New Hampshire dropped about 36 percent between the years 2007 and uh, 2015. It's based on something called the annual point-in-time counts of the homeless. Uh, what basically happens is a night in January, volunteers go out and count the number of homeless people Uh, both those who are in shelters and those who aren't. Based on your reporting, how accurate do you think that number is? Is is New Hampshire really doing that much better than other states in New England at solving the homeless problem? You know, we're not sure there's really evidence that that New Hampshire is. And anyone you talk to will tell you that those point-in-time counts are really unreliable ways to take stock of who really doesn't have a home in the state. Uh, In cities, you you know, it's one night of people walking around scouting out the people they can find who are sleeping outside. But as we know, homelessness is largely an invisible kind of out of sight problem. Then you're talking about doing it in rural areas where a lot of times you're relying on people showing up and saying, yep, put me down. I'm, I'm homeless. Add me to your list. So they're just not real scientific methods we're talking about in figuring out you know, how big is this problem in New Hampshire or any other state? If you compare the 2016 and 2015 numbers in New Hampshire, um, homelessness, according to those numbers, went down, I think it was 9%, right? And we we asked the head of the biggest shelter in the state about that, and he just kind of scratched his head. He's like, I don't think that's necessarily true. We also talked to a woman who ran a shelter in a rural part of the state. She said she was seeing more people this winter in her shelter than she had in previous years, Um, more families, more children, more people addicted to opioids and heroin. Uh, Some advocates are just kind of frustrated with the way the government counts. They say, you know, why don't you count in the summertime, for example, you know, when there are more people on the streets? Why don't you find a way to incorporate um, individuals like at the PK Motel or doubled up with family? You know, the the count sort of has to be done. There has to be a way of quantifying the problem so that the federal government and states can create policy. Um, But there at this point, there is no reliable way to count the number of homeless people that that we found. 
Natasha, it's obviously a very complex problem, but in talking to some officials about this here in Connecticut over the years, and certainly for this story, you get the sense that the high cost of housing is going to be one of the biggest contributing factors. Is this really a housing question, or is there something else at the root of this problem uh, that you found from your reporting? So I think housing is a huge part of this, but I'd be lying if I told you that that's the big takeaway for us is that, oh, if, if housing was a little more affordable, this problem would be solved. It's so complicated. And it, it also you have to take into account people's choices um, and, and where they have decided that they're safe. A, a lot of people we talked to were trying to get out of situations that maybe was a permanent home, but where they did not feel safe. Either you're talking about abuse or um, a death in the family or just literally the, the house they're living in isn't being maintained. So there's so many factors. I know that's not a very satisfying answer, but that's the truth. Jack Rodolico and Natasha Haverty are the reporters for New Hampshire Public Radio, whose series is called No Place to Go, Homeless in New Hampshire. Thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Coming up, we'll explore a 7,800-acre forest in the White Mountains, a laboratory where scientists track the forest ecosystem. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the early 1960s, a group of environmental scientists in New Hampshire started a research project on a scale that had never quite been done before. Their laboratory was an entire ecosystem, a 7,800-acre forest in the White Mountains. The nine distinct watersheds in the forest would allow for comparison studies, and the length of the study would help to chart the natural and man-made changes that happen in a forest. One of their first observations, the high acidity of water in forest streams, led to awareness of acid rain and the eventual amendment of the Clean Air Act in 1990. More than 50 years later, researchers at Hubbard Brook are documenting the effects of climate change, the decline in bird populations, and more. Gene Likens is co-founder of the Hubbard Brook Ecosystem Study. He's also co-author of the book, Hubbard Brook, The Story of a Forest Ecosystem. Gene Likens, welcome to Next. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Could you start by painting a picture, if you would? Tell us what Hubbard Brook looks like. Oh, Hubbard Brook is one of the most beautiful places on earth, in my opinion. Uh, It's in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, It's a forested region of deciduous forest, beech, birch, and maple. And then Hubbard Brook itself is drained by a large river, but in New England we call them brooks, I guess, so it's called Hubbard Brook. And it's just a wonderful place. There are no ticks, there's no poison ivy, there's no poisonous snakes, and I've always said I can't believe somebody pays me to work there. Perhaps the most famous uh, discovery in Hubbard Brook was the discovery of acid rain. You were the lead researcher on the paper about the effects of acid air pollution on the forests. It eventually led to the Clean Air Act in 1990 to reduce emissions of sulfur dioxide and and nitrogen oxides. Maybe you can talk a bit about that discovery and, and how influential you believe what you found there at Hubbard Brook was to some of the the legal changes we saw in the new national consciousness about the problems of acid rain. 
Well, the very first sample of rain that we collected and measured its chemistry had an acidity that was about a hundred times more acid than we uh, expected. And then we continued to collect samples and they continued to be very acid. That first sample was in the summer of 1963. And we didn't publish uh, the paper on acid rain. Uh, we didn't publish that paper until 1972 because we had to try to understand how long maybe the rain had, and snow had been acid. Where was that acidity coming from? Uh, was it causing any damage? Was it unusual? It turned out that the acidity was coming primarily from power plants in the Midwestern United States that were emitting large amounts of sulfur dioxide and some nitrogen oxides. And in the atmosphere, those oxides were converted to two of our strongest acids, sulfuric acid and nitric acid, and then they were falling to the landscape and causing the ecological effects. And I led a small team in 1983 to President Reagan and the full cabinet to talk about the acid rain problem and what might be done about it. But the response was, well, we'll study it for 10 years, and then we'll know enough, and we can make intelligent decisions. And, and given that, that study, do, do you think that we made an intelligent decisions in the wake of, of the research that you did and the case that you made for for acid rain being a problem we need to we need to deal with? Well, that led ultimately to the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, which you referred to, and that was signed by George H. Bush in 1990. And it resulted in the continuation of the reduction in sulfur dioxide emissions, so that currently in the United States, the emissions are reduced by about 80%, and so is the acidity. The acidity of rain and snow is about 80% less than it was uh, in 1970 or early 70s when it was at its peak, and that's a real success story. But the problem has really not gone away because uh, with all these decades of acid precipitation, the buffering capacity in the soils in these sensitive areas like the White Mountains of New Hampshire or the Adirondack Mountains of New York, for example, uh, have been greatly depleted so that even though the acidity of rain and snow is less, the ability to buffer and neutralize those acids coming in from the atmosphere is also very much less. And so the problem still continues and in some ways is worse than it was before because we have so depleted the neutralizing capacity of the system. I wonder if you can talk about some of the experiments that you've done about deforestation, including one in which you clear-cut large swaths of the forest. What, what have you learned about the effects of deforestation by cutting down big groupings of trees in Hubbard Brook? Well, we wanted to understand more about the environmental effects of clear-cutting, which is a common way in which forests are harvested. Uh, it was particularly common in the 1960s and 70s uh, as a way of harvesting timber. And that harvesting process can be quite damaging to the ecosystem in a variety of ways. And we wanted to understand more about that so we could try to develop a better management plan 
And we found that, to our great surprise, that when we cut down the trees, there was a very large increase in nitrate concentrations. Nitrate is a very important plant nutrient. So that led us to understand uh, that we were going to lose large amounts of the critically important nutrient. Uh, But also, we then led to a series of uh, management proposals like, well, you shouldn't cut a a particular area very often, and we propose every 75 years. And the U.S. Forest Service now has adopted a plan of not cutting a specific area more often than every 100 years, based largely on these results. Also, don't cut on really steep slopes. Don't drag logs down stream channels, which were actually done, believe it or not. One of the other things that you've done over the years is track the bird populations in the forest. And you've noted a a real decline in the number of birds in the forest from from 214 individual birds back in 1972 to just 71 in 2002 with some fluctuations over the years. Why do you think that the numbers of bird species in the forest have changed so dramatically over the course of the last couple decades? It was thought that possibly, since these are migratory birds coming from places like the Caribbean, that that was a deterioration of that wintering habitat that was uh, causing their decline. So the scientists went to that area and studied and found indeed that the habitat there was being impacted by human activities, but that this was probably not the reason for the major decline in the bird populations. Instead, it has to do with other things, such as mortality during the the migration, some 60 to 65 percent or so of their total mortality occurs during that migratory journey. Another problem was that the forest is actually changing, uh, again, because of natural changes called succession over time, but also because of, of impacts such as acid rain on the forest. And when they looked more carefully at the bird populations, they found that some species, like the leech flycatcher, for example, has totally disappeared. But other species have actually increased, and some have not changed. And it points out very clearly the need for long-term detailed studies in order to answer these kinds of complicated problems. Short-term studies would have said, oh, well, the bird populations are declining, the whole world is is being destroyed, and that's not the case. It's (laughs) much more complicated than that. Well, as you talk about the the long-term studies that are needed on issues like bird species change, obviously the the biggest long-term experiment that's being conducted right now is what are the effects of climate change (laughs) on a number of ecosystems. So I'm wondering what you've seen over these 50-plus years, Gene Likens, of watching this forest grow and recede and change, and what impacts you think climate change have had there at Hubbard Brook? It's getting wetter. Our long-term data show that very clearly. The soils are getting warmer. The air temperature is getting warmer. We're having more rain on snow events in the wintertime. The snow depth is less than it was. The winter period is very different by our data than what it was 50 years ago. 
One of the long-term measurements that we have is the ice cover on a lake called Mirror Lake in the Hubbardbrook Valley. Today, the ice cover is some 24 days shorter than it was in the early 1960s. That has all kinds of impacts on the functioning of the lake. The bud break in the spring of trees and other plants is earlier. The leaves last a bit longer in the fall. And so we're seeing a lot of different impacts, and these are under great intense study at the moment at the Hubbardbrook Experimental Forest. What's the most exciting things happening there right now, Gene? There's currently a large experiment going on while it's related to winter and changing winter and the fact that we appear to be having more ice storms in the wintertime. So there's a a large experimental uh, manipulation going on in which we're simulating an ice storm with uh, pumping water on the trees and causing ice to form on the branches and and the trunks of the trees during the wintertime and looking at that kind of effect. So looking at those kinds of more extreme events in the wintertime in particular is, I think, where a lot of the research at Hubbardbrook is going to go in the next several years. A last thing for you, Gene. I know that at the end of, of your book, you kind of guess at what this forest might look like some years into the future. I know that you've been working there for, for 50 years. What do you think Hubbard Brook's going to be like 50 years or so from now? Yeah, I'm really interested in this. The opening of the book is called The Prologue. We invite you to step into the forest today and let your senses take over. You know, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you feel? And then, as you suggest, the final part invites you to step into the forest in 2065, 50 years from now. Obviously, we don't know, but my personal opinion is that there's going to be many changes For example, I mentioned that there are no poisonous snakes or poison ivy or ticks. Um, We predict that there will be poison ivy and ticks and other invasive species in the forest in 2065. Uh, We expect technology to be much more prominent. The data will be collected by drones flying overhead rather than a scientist walking around on the forest floor. That makes me kind of sad because I love being out in the forest. We suggest that uh, the the sugar maples will be gone because of climate change, but that the Forest Service has planted some uh, GM sugar maples, and the rumor has it that maple syrup from those sugar maples isn't quite as good as it used to be from (laughs) (laughs) the natural sugar maples. But, and not to be pessimistic because they try very hard to be optimistic, I don't think we went far enough. I think we were too cautious. If you think about the changes that have occurred in the previous 50 years, I think the changes that will occur in the next 50 years are going to be quite large. And I think it's very important to have long-term studies like we've had at Hubbardbrook to not only document those changes, but understand what those changes mean to not only the systems where they are occurring, but to us humans that depend upon those systems. Gene Likens, thanks so much for, for taking us on a tour of this, uh, this forest that you obviously love so much and you've been working uh, with so closely for such a long time. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. I do love the forest, and thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. 
Gene Lichen's latest book, Hubbard Brook, The Story of a Forest Ecosystem, is published by Yale University Press. If you'd like to visit Hubbard Brook yourself, it's open to the public. For a slideshow of images and directions to the forest, head to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll hear from an African-American cop in a New Hampshire county where blacks are six times more likely to be in jail than whites. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. This segment, we're returning to the issue of race and policing in New England. While our region has been spared in the wave of high-profile shootings of black men by white officers, those killings do resonate here among residents of our cities, and among law enforcement officers. Previously, Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio had brought us her investigation into the criminal justice system in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire. It is the state's most populous and most diverse county in what is an overwhelmingly white state. She found that blacks are six times more likely to be in jail there than whites. There's a disparity in the police force, too. In the city of Nashua, there are just two black police officers in a force of 170. Today, Emily introduces us to one of those officers, Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps. Sergeant Phelps. Hi, Nicole. I can remember when I first got hired, I had a little blue sports car, and one of the troopers would stop me like once every other night. I'm like, how do you not know my car by now? <laughs> it's, I worked midnight shift, so I would be coming to work at 11 o'clock. He would be in the turnaround, and I would see him come out, and I would just start pulling over. Can I attribute it to me being black and in the wrong place at the wrong time? Probably, because I stick out like a sore thumb. My name is Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps. I am currently a street supervisor for the Uniform Field Operations Bureau. Um, I've been here for 19 years, so long time. You get it from both ends. I get it from my law enforcement friends that's saying, I don't get this whole Black Lives Matter thing. Why does race matter? Why does... You're sitting there saying, what if I am a part of that movement? You're not asking me. You don't care to ask because you're not seeing me. I'll get from actual family members. Cops fucking suck. Not you, auntie. And it's sort of like, but I'm here. What began as a routine traffic stop turned deadly Wednesday. Philando Castile has died. That week, it just came to a head because so much stuff had happened. Over the shooting death of Alton Sterling by two Baton Rouge police Snipers opened fire on police who were on duty at a black... My deputy chief came to me and said, hey, would you participate in this community conversation? It gave people in the community the opportunity to see what police officers thought I just want to know, like, how do you guys feel and take it? Like, when you hear about um, the young black males getting shot, obviously, by the police, like, how do you guys take it? Like, what he, what happens in the police office? Like, what do you guys talk about? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I guess. My the whole time that I was there, I'm like, Lord, I need to keep my mouth closed because I know something wrong is going to come out. I get very defensive of police officers um, because I am one. That's what I can relate to. That's who I am. That's, you know, what I can relate to. I get the... I, I say, hold on, don't judge the cop, 
or what happened yet until you know what happened. And don't take When I say it was overwhelming, I can still replay parts of actually getting up and speaking. I woke up. I never felt such hopelessness, mm -hmm. despair. I felt miserable. Mm -hmm. I looked at my two-year-old son and I said, how can I explain to him that people that dress like me, because he knows that I'm a cop, he comes to the station all the time, people that are dressed like me are killing people that look like you. Not that they're not killing white people or Asians, but this is a personal, now I'm speaking as a person, not as a cop. That was my personal assessment. What do I say to a two-year-old black kid? How do I explain that to him? Fast forward until officers getting ambushed and killed. My 14-year-old white daughter came downstairs and said, you going to work today? I said, yep. How can you go to work when you know that there are people that look like you killing people that are dressed like you? This was a choice that I made to put this uniform on and protect people that look like you, 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 no matter what. It's not a choice of, yep, I'm going to treat her different because she's black. I'm going to treat her different because she's white. I made that decision, and I made that decision for Nashua. No other police department. I didn't want to work anywhere else. I didn't go anywhere. I don't, I don't live in Nashua, so I'll, t I'll tell you that. But I wanted to work here. I, I impressed myself by keeping a lot of negativity out of that conversation because I wanted to take a, a stance of black power, and you guys need to recognize black people. But I know that that's not the case with some of my coworkers because it's not that they don't recognize black people they're just uninformed. And I wouldn't believe racism existed in a sense if it never happened to me. Like all these incidents involving police shootings, it's like he didn't shoot him because he was black, but you don't know that. You're just speaking on you wouldn't shoot somebody because they were black. But I absolutely know that I can get shot just because I'm black. Do I think my coworkers or other officers in the New England area have that same empathy that I, I can feel? but I think they need to feel it or hear it or know it um, from somewhere else outside of what they're seeing on TV. It needs to be talked about now. That's Nashua, New Hampshire Police Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps talking to Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio. Let's go a few hours south of Nashua to the western edge of Providence, Rhode Island. It's a neighborhood that's dealt with high rates of crime for years. Dean Isabella and Jose Rodriguez both grew up there, several decades apart. Isabella is a captain in the Providence Police Department. That's how he met Rodriguez, who was a teenager and an active gang member. Years later, their paths crossed again when Rodriguez started working to stop gang violence. Isabella and Rodriguez describe how a kid from the neighborhood and a cop became close friends as part of the Rhode Island Public Radio series, Speaking Across Difference. My impression of police at 19, 20, 21, and even earlier than that was that the police are here in this community only to hurt me. And it's only because every encounter that I ever had with police was them removing someone important from my life. My name is Jose Rodriguez. I'm 32 years old, and I'm a case manager for the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. As a district lieutenant, I was charged with uh, problem solving in our district. And our district had issues with both Manton and Hartford uh, housing developments, which were a hotbed for gang activity. My name is Dean Isabella. I'm 53 years old, and I'm a captain with the Providence Police Department in Providence, Rhode Island. 
that was my first encounter with Jose. Yeah, he had braids, hmm. and he was heavier. You know, he was just part of that whole Manton crew, which was the name of the gang that was in the Manton housing development. How I found myself involved with the crew was simple. I grew up in the area. You, you had to pick a side. I lived on this side of the bridge, so I'm going to stay on this side of the bridge. And anyone from the other side of the bridge that crossed the bridge, then we're going to have an issue. That was just a typical street encounter with somebody who was raising hell. And it was my job to make sure that he wasn't comfortable raising hell. Lieutenant Isabella at the time wasn't uh, perceived to be the nicest individual. Uh, he could come off as being looking very mean, so very intimidating. To I'm, say the I'm least. Hurt. <laughs> My experience being raised in the same community as Jose was um, a lot like his. So Manton Avenue at the time was a very poor area. It was an area that had a lot of crime, drug-related crime, and organized crime, actually. When I started working at the Institute and I actually heard that he was actually from the same neighborhood, I was able to make him into a human. Um, because uh, growing up where I grew up, I dehumanized him because I saw him as the enemy. And you have to appreciate the fact that he grew up in this neighborhood and he came back to patrol this neighborhood and to try to make this neighborhood better. What I think growing up in the same neighborhood has done for me is just, it, it allowed me an insight to the circumstances of people's lives and what causes them to, you know, maybe resort to doing some things that they would not have if they were in a better environment. You develop an empathy for folks that are growing up, an understanding for folks that, that are uh, growing up in those circumstances. And when you do, you understand that, you know, there are reasons behind why some people turn to criminality to survive. I had already met Jose, he was working for the Institute, and I had gotten information that Jose was possibly dealing drugs again. But I wanted to make sure that that information was true, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to tell me whether or not it was true. Walking into the meeting, I was scared because I, I was on parole. I, I honestly wasn't doing what they said that I was doing, but I was immediately, you go until you retrieve back into that mentality of, well, he's a cop, he's gonna f me over, I'm gonna go back to jail, and I'm really not doing anything wrong. Like, I'm really trying to do the right thing. I said, Jose, this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that, you know, you're dealing drugs and, you know, the circumstances around that. And he just explained it and said, nope, this is not what's going on. This is what's going on with that. He brought it to the table and basically gave me an opportunity to either, if I was doing it, cut it the hell out or to come clean and we could work it out. For the first time there, I think that I saw him as a, as a person like, wow, he's, he's actually not trying to put me in jail. Like he's, he was given some information that he may or may not have believed, but he wanted to clarify it and make me aware of it and that made him a person like he actually cared for a moment about me when the conversation was had it gave me a sense of relief so that's what I felt uh, walking out of that room like relief like wow maybe I do have somebody on my side I got myself into a situation and I got a violation and I got sentenced to 15 months and I was surprised at the amount of support that I still had coming home uh, Isabella being one of them when he got out, I called him, and we set up a date. I picked him up. We went and just grabbed the coffee to, to talk about life. Him just picking me up was strange because I'm getting in the front of the police car, which was something completely new <laughs> for me. 
and I do want to point that out that it was initiated by him. Like he really wanted to make sure that um, him and I um, sat somewhere and had an honest conversation. Look, you don't throw away a whole life because it got, because it got banged up in a few spots, right? You, you don't do that, and and you don't you don't throw away all the hard work that you did to get to the point of where you are um, because you made a mistake. You know, that's just that's life. You make mistakes. You pick yourself back up. And I remember the conversation, the honesty in the conversation, you know, this is no longer he's a cop and I'm a guy. Like, this is me and my friend having a conversation over coffee. I just wanted to make sure that Jose understood that the people that supported him are going to still support him and still still want him to succeed because it's important. I mean, he, he not only important personally for his own life, but important that... You know, he's doing the type of work that can affect people's lives forever. You know, if he can reach one or two kids, he might be saving their lives. One of the things I don't want to be misrepresented is, like, I'm a mentor for Jose. I mean, I don't, I don't perceive myself as a mentor. I perceive myself as a friend. You know, and friends, you want your friends to do well. You want your friends to succeed. You want your friends to be able to have a good life. You want your friends to be able to be happy. And I think he's done a lot of hard work to take uh, a very difficult circumstance and start to create a pretty good life for himself. I was running on that false impression that everything that I had done prior to going to prison was voided because I went back to prison. Um, the people that I had helped, the people that I had reached, um, were no longer going to have the same respect for me because I went back to prison. But uh, um, I was able to regain that respect and you know, I'm moving forward. I'm doing better because of it. That story was produced by Rhode Island Public Radio's John Bender as part of their series, Speaking Across Difference. Thanks to Ambar Espinosa for her help. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.